0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC. Welcome to the 80s Glam Metal Cast. I am your host, Metal Mike. This podcast is the audio extension of my Twitter page, at 80sGlamMetal1. In this premiere episode, we talk to a glam metal legend, a founding Tiger Tails member, guitarist Jay Pepper. We chat about what's going on with Tiger Tails in 2020 and some important moments in Jay's career. He also gives us his thoughts on U.S. glam bands like Motley Crue and Poison. This is a really great story of doing it for the love of the music and not the money, and it's told by a genuine down-to-earth guy. Enjoy. Okay, so uh, the big question, Jay, is what is going on with Tiger Tales in
1: 2020? (laughs) Uh, Not a lot, to be honest. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, I I don't know. There's i've kind of taken a step back from the whole thing to be honest mike i have had various problems with my uh, my hearing mainly i i have got decreased hearing from being in the music business for so many years and uh, i've got pretty severe tinnitus so i've had a number of audiology kind of tests and they they said you know you're not doing yourself any favors by you know playing having that loud music and um, I've never really gotten on with uh, in-ear monitors and that kind of thing. I like the noise, you know, the volume of the back line and stuff. So that was my main reason for kind of stat- taking a step back. We played, we, 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 I mean, we haven't played a lot in recent years. We, we do a few shows a year that didn't play, I don't think, at all last year. Um, but everybody wants us to do something for, you know, 2020 now, whether it be the 30th uh, anniversary of Berserk, everyone's kind of looking for that. So... I've committed to, to doing one festival so far and Hard Rock Hell uh, at the end of next year. Maybe we'll add one or two more and, and hopefully I can make that, but I, I'm not sure there will be a great deal more, to be honest.
0: And when you're talking about Berserk 30, uh, are you going to play the whole album in full on these shows?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the plan. Um, I think we did it at 20 years. I think um, we did it with one one-off show. But um, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, we will play the whole album in full.
0: That's great. Any uh, plans to re-release it on vinyl or anything like that?
1: Well, you know, everybody kind of, you know, the fans really ask about that stuff, um, but it's been re, re-, re-, re- reissued once, um, which is when we first got back together, I think in 2006, something like that, around that time, by um, uh, Sanctuary Music at the time. And I don't know, I, I you know, I, I know people want to collect this stuff, but I don't know whether we do it justice, if you know what I mean. I don't think, you know, there's not a lot of remnants of the original artwork and stuff, so we'd be working off reproducing, you know, CDs and and kind of the the, the vinyl, the original vinyl. And I I just don't know if there's a great deal of call for it. I mean, the album's available on, uh, you know, on Spotify and things, but I don't know. We're talking about it, but, you know, these things, they, they... I'm a big believer, if you can't do something properly, me me and Pepsi always felt the same way, if you can't do something properly and do it the right way, then then don't bother. You know, our stuff has has always been about as big, bombastic as you can make it, Um, from everything we did, from the sound to the image, to the, you know, and that went followed through onto the products we released. If you buy any of our merch, the shirts are killer, you know, they're always like, if they're color, they're like six, seven, eight colors, you know, they're... They're really, you know, as good as you can make it, and and the artwork always went the same. So if you can't do that, I I don't know. I don't know if there's much point in doing it. And I'm not sure we could really do it just, just, could we make it any better than it was? I I don't really think we could.
0: I totally understand. So let's go back a little bit and talk about uh, the debut album, uh, Young and Crazy. What are your memories of making that one, Jay?
1: Well, that started, I mean, you know, like a band we were, obviously, when that first came out, I mean, it came out in 87, but we'd actually been around for about three, four years before that, and we'd actually recorded that album. We got signed by, I don't know if you remember a band called Tokyo Blade, um, they were a UK band, but pretty big in Europe at the time. Their manager signed us, and we recorded the album with him, um, but by the time we finished it... Um, he kind of touted it around and we had a few labels that wanted to sign us music for nation one so they they kind of took the album as it was and and even though it hadn't been released at that point um they they made us you know kind of i wouldn't say re-record the whole thing most of it some of it um and, and it's just oh the memories are pretty big we did it in a very short space of time like less than two weeks i think it cost a you know minimal amount of money at the time and um it, it did did really really well you know it was uh we were, it was our, we'd had an EP out, I think, first, and we did a few demos and then an EP. Then the Young Crazy came out, and it kind of changed everything, really, for us.
0: I was just listening to it today, and I think it still sounds incredible. Uh, this is one that, I, for my, my memories on it, is uh, I think I was about 11 years old when the album came out. And I remember seeing the cover, and you guys, you're all glammed out, you know, just looking awesome. And I bought that without ever hearing a lick of your music. And uh, when I got it home, I was
1: I was blown away by it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty basic and raw. And um, we were quite um, constrained in each other. You know, when we, it was me and Stevie wrote nearly all those songs. Like Pepsi only wrote one, but, but Pepsi was an incredibly creative guy. I mean, as far as the cover goes, he rejected. There is actually two versions of that album. The one you would have had is the one that Pepsi redid, that. There is actually one in, that in like All Pink um, that the record company did. And basically Pepsi just said, no, that ain't going out like that. And he redid the whole thing. But they they'd actually pressed up a few of There's a few of those kicking around somewhere. Um, he didn't like it at all. So he, he redid the whole thing. And then from that moment on, he always did all the artwork for the band. Um, but as far as the music, we were quite constrained. And I wrote all the music and Stevie wrote the lyrics and saw some of them, the melodies and things. But... Pepsi, who was a, incredibly, you know, became the, the you know, main driving force in the band, really was quite constrained. He had one song on that record, She's Too Hot. Um, so it was kind of really, uh, I wouldn't say, well, it was just, you know, we were pretty new to writing songs and stuff at that point, um, and then new as a band. But it was only after that. We, you know, me and, we all came from different backgrounds, but me and Pepsi were into, like, big production stuff, you know, we were all about the, you know, we would buy, like you, you bought the album for the cover. We'd buy albums by producers. We were massively into Langer and I remember when we, we heard, I bought the Kicks album on a strength that he produced that, you know, Midnight Dynamite, because we were all about the kind of really big productions, the uh, massive ha- layered harmonies and all that kind of Def Leppard stuff, and, you know, Iron um, uh, the, the, the ACDC albums, I and mean, I was a huge ACDC fan, and, and so when MacNanga did like, you know, uh, From Pirate Hell and Back and Black and Fuzz with the Rock, you know, we were just massively into producers and uh, big fans of Bro Hill, and so we didn't get a chance to do that on our first record, and like I said, we felt, you know, with no budget or limited budget, it was all a bit constrained, but we had so much more kind of innocent Really, that's what Berserk came. That became the true kind of reflection of what we thought the band should sound like on that record. But, you know, Young Crazy was quite punky sounding. I got big, you know, huge punk influence. I, I love punk music too. Um, so it's kind of a, it's just pretty raw as a band, you know, it's just the first release of a band, a bit like, you know, Cruise, uh, uh, you know, Too Fast for love. It's kind of that kind of vibe about it.
0: That's funny that you say that because I, I think of that analogy as well. I hear some Too Fast for Love uh, in there that in, in the respect that it's a mix of a lot of different sounds coming together. Because like you said, I can hear the punk. I can hear pop. I don't know if there's some new wave in there, but there, there's a lot of stuff. And overall, it's actually pretty heavy as well
1: yeah i mean you know on that i i agree and i think that you know a lot of bands and when you're a fan of a band you you, you know as a fan of the band you, you always look at the music very differently to the, the musicians you know they they're so entrenched in it they they don't get the same they don't look at it and they can't look at it in an objective way like like a, a fan would, would 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 look at it so i'm the same you know most of the you know the, the bands i'm into i always pre- prefer those early albums so
0: you mentioned Stevie James. He was out of the band pretty early, uh, right after this album came out, I believe. What happened with that whole situation?
1: Well, oh gosh, it's such a long time ago now. Um, Stevie, I mean, we we were before Stevie joined. We were, we were going for a few years, and we were kind of into that kind of image. It wasn't anywhere near. There's some early pictures of the band. I don't know if you've ever, ever seen any of those. Where we were kind of into that stuff. It looked more like early Van Halen, I suppose, you know, we're kind of tying bits all over us and just looking a bit different. Um, but I'd say when Stevie joined, he pushed that whole grand thing. You know, he was the one who pushed that, just much more extreme. Um, and in doing so, you know, we, we got noticed even more at the time. Um, but he was, we were all pretty wild, you know, young guys in our early twenties and, um, we were all about the, you know, like most bands are. That that kind of back in the day, we were about the, the drink, the drugs, and all the way with it. And um, you know, we would all, you know, kill it pretty, pretty bad, and and smash it up as it were, and just live the whole lifestyle. But I think Stevie just pushed it a bit more than most, and he he was quite. Um, he, got, he used to get himself in a lot of scrapes, you know, in, in sort of violent scrapes when he was out and about. And I, 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 there was incidents when the album came out, I think he confronted one of the journalists at the time who would given the album not a sort of favourable review. And um, I, I, I remember the record company saying, you know, that this can't happen. Um, you know, you can't, you can't have this guy doing this kind of thing. And he, he would get into scrapes and... Fights and things. He really, I mean, he was a wild guy. I mean, great, great front man, so much charisma, so much character, and, uh, you know, very creative as well. I mean, um, we, we did work some great stuff together, but it just became, I said he was the sort of record company fellow, Mark Hook at the time, who sadly passed away this week, actually. He just said, you know, he, he can't move on with with, uh, with somebody acting like that. So they, you know, kind of pushed for us to, to replace him.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you're kind of running a business, and you really can't beat on, you know, the people that are, that are going to potentially promote you. Uh, I got to say, though, the guy's got an interesting voice. He, he sings in a little bit of a lower register, and I really dig when times when he, he pulls, like, that screech, and it's almost like two voices, two separate voices. Uh, Tom Kiefer does this. Uh, uh, Dizzy Dean from Brittany Fox did it as well. I really enjoy that with that two-voice uh, thing going on
1: yeah i mean he's definitely had, had a vibe going on for sure you know um and uh you know it's just i think like a lot of those, those kind of singers you know for for most of these type of bands just the kind of people have a love-hate relationship with it, The people who love that kind of thing don't want you know don't want to hear anything other than that kind of ear of the band um you know the people who got into the band a bit later on they only kind of recognized him as a singer so it's like that with a lot of bands, you know, and I mean, you know, getting back to your point there about, you know, when you're running a business, it's the same age old problem with bands, you know, it's why Peter Chris and australia Fraley are not in case, it's why, you know, the, the various the lineups of the bands ain't together because it just doesn't work, you know, it, uh, it, it's, it's just the way of things and um, at the end of the day, you know, when you kick off in a band and you're doing it and living the life, you know, it's all great, but Things have got to work, you know, and when stuff doesn't work, and when it stops the band functioning, you know, you've, you've got to change the, the employees. It, you know, that's, it, that's the way it is. It's, uh, uh, And, uh, you know, we were no different to like a hundred other bands.
0: So how did you find Kim Hooker?
1: Well, Kim was known to us anyway. He was a friend of ours. Uh, he was in a, a, a local band from Carco, Rank Elson, who, who'd all they'd been signed before us. They had, I think, two albums out. And he was actually the bass player, but we knew he could sing because uh, he'd been in the bands that, that we knew about. But we were good friends with him, Pepsi, more than I at the time. I mean, he looked incredible; he looked great. Um, and Pepsi just said, "Why don't you give it a go?" You know, and he was like, "Cool, I don't know." Um, and we did a demo. We played it the record company, and they were like, "Wow, definitely." But we had a lot of kickback from you know people around the band at the time, and. Um, so we actually had to sell it to everyone, i say everyone the people in, involved in, in the team, our business group at that time, and, and we, we went and did a, a, a short showcase effectively in a rehearsal room in, uh, in London at the time too, with Kim to effectively, like a, a full audition but live show in front of, you know, about 10 people who were working for us and they were all unanimous, you know, the guy's great, looks great, band sounds great, got at him. And and... Um, It was kind of a fairly easy change for us, you know. Uh, And it just slotted right in, and it was, you know, things just worked. So in
0: 1990, you make Berserk. Uh, I mean, I would say this is a glam metal masterpiece. I'm sure many will agree with me. Uh, And this did pretty well in Europe, correct?
1: Oh, it was was a big hit over here, yeah. And, And once it came out in 1990, we recorded it over a year before. This was one of the huge frustrations with the record label at the time. I mean... Don't get me wrong, we we, we, uh, we started recording that in January, I think, 1989, over a year before it came out. Um, we did take about three months recording it, and we have taken a long time pulling the demos together. Um, and this comes down to the pure essence of the band, to be honest. And, and I, I don't, I don't want to criticize any other bands. I mean, I, I know how difficult it is to make a record, you know, get a deal, all those kind of things, and then make an album. But we... The, the amount of production that went into our stuff particularly that record the the pre-production with the demos um and the actual record of that album it took i mean well well over three months and you know cost a fortune at the time i think it cost over a hundred thousand to make which was a lot of money back back at that time um and it, it was ready over a year before it came out and record company, I don't know for one reason or another, they wouldn't release it at particular times. They wanted to do a single, so we released the Love Bomb Baby single. Um, but, you know, when it eventually did come out it was yeah, it was a huge success for us and um, you know, charted over here, charted in other places in Europe it was um, it, it really was just kind of it was everything you, you we wanted the band to sound like and where we thought the band should be. Um, Unfortunately, the, you know, the lack of record company support kind of held us back
0: a bit on that. It's funny that you talk about the sound because that's something I would like to talk about. Um, Chris Sangarides, is that how you say it? Um, he produced this album and, and he was known for producing a lot of like you know, harder metal acts. And when I listen to this album, it, it, it almost sounds like a live album to me. Um, yeah, well, I mean, we, we,
1: again, because we left nothing, you know, we were all about the, the, the production, we were all about producers, we wanted, you know, as big a name and as big a credible and, and experienced producers we could get, I mean, we went through loads of names, I mean, I can't remember how many at the time, but, um, you know, Chris was, he was a member of, I, I don't you probably don't know, but Mutt Langer's company, they were all owned, uh, managed by a Management company called Zomba, and Chris worked for Zomba. So I think we approached him, and you know Chris was available, and um, yeah, I mean he'd done some great stuff, you know, some you know, Thin Lizzy albums, um, lots of Gary Moore stuff, and uh, Y&T, and you know we were big fans of those bands. So he was a great choice. I mean, but I mean the amount of effort, and this goes back to you know again the kind of the shame of, of, of where the kind of record companies sort came in. I mean, we spent three months making it. I mean you. Can't imagine the amount of work that went into making that record and we're talking string sections it was recorded different studios um chris went off and did the judas priest album um, painkillers in the middle of it and then you know, we carried on with other tickle tapes back to wales did the guitar solos we went to battery studios for a deaf effort it's you know pyromania and and uh Styrian. we did sections with Don Airy and some of the ELO guys. I mean, I mean it, it, nothing was left to chance. You know, it, it was a phenomenally sounding record and, and so much effort and work went into making it. And then the record company said enough, you spent enough money on it. And, and the wrong of is we had to mix it in five days. So whilst it sounds great, I have demo tapes and things, or rough mixes, I should say, of, of things and, you know, it would have sounded a lot better had it not gone mixed in five days but it still stands up now it's just a terrific record you know
0: you got a favorite song on there
1: i think i mean i'm all about me and Pepsi. you're all again about the production and i think the, the moments for me were on six the opening track all that opening sequence was um don airy was a friend of chris sangaridi's and he came down and, and worked with us for weeks and I remember Don sitting there listening to the songs and he just wrote stuff down as we played them through and because we told him what we wanted, you know, we had a pretty clear idea we wanted and and when I was sat in the room in the the recording studio with Don here, you know, I'm a huge uh, Randy Rones fan, so for someone who played on the two Blizzard of Oz albums, you know, and never mind all the other stuff he's done, I was just in awe of this guy, and he never once asked us what key, anything he was in, what we were playing, he just wrote everything. note, he just knew by ear what what we were playing, every note, and then he went away, came back about a week later, he said, here's the score, he played all the piano parts, he played all the keyboards, and then we went to Battery Studios with a whole orchestra, and he conducted the score, the whole thing, conducted the orchestra, so that intro to 6x and all the string section in there, that, that kind of stuff is... Uh, that's the shit for me, and um, it was everything I thought the band should be about. You know, huge guitars, huge, you know, kind of uh, movement in all the, the string arrangements, massive backing vocals, and uh, yeah, it's, it's about, I think, Six Sex and the Bits and Squeeze you Dry. I mean, Heaven was great. Edie did a brilliant job on the piano and all the strings in that. I mean, we also got Pete Gobian from, we were big Uriah Heep fans at the time on, on the two Uriah Heep albums that. Uh, Pete Govey was on that. He came in and did some backing vocals, and that sounds great. I mean, I love most of it. There's certain parts of it I like, born the
0: other. So, so they had to be pretty surreal, right? They're, like, you're going back to you listening to these albums in your bedroom when you were younger, and then all of a sudden you're, you're playing with this guy on an album. Oh,
1: it's insane. And I mean, I, like I said, I've got little video footage. I, I would just chat to him for hours because I've been a guitar player, you, As a guitar player, you tend to spend more time in the studio than anyone else because you have to do guy guitars, the real guitars, the solos, and generally you're kind of all over everything, even what other people are doing there, but so I was, most other guys might not be there, and I had him playing Mr. Crowley and all the Aussie songs, you know, they all got video of him playing the intro to Mr. Crowley and all that kind of stuff, so yeah, you kind of had to pinch yourself, you know, it was it was schoolboy stuff.
0: You know, I'm I'm kind of a sucker for those like simple pop song, uh, simple pop, you know, metal songs. I like twisted Shake a lot.
1: I think that do you know that was the first song Kim uh, came out. He had the bulk of that. That was one of the first things we wrote for that album, out of the demos, and it kind of worked straight away. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with it. I mean. I have to say that wasn't, we were all about the heavier kind of Aussie kind of vibe with the string sections. Um, that wasn't me, when me and Pepsi came on big. We liked the poppy stuff too and we were all about the big vocals, but we kind of wrote those songs that the poppy stuff was specific. The record company always, you know, back in the day they wanted the singles and they wanted those three-minute kind of wham-bam, you know, ear-catching, hook-filled-with-hooks kind of songs, so... I, I, love, I love them too, but I, you know I, I'm all about the heavier stuff for me.
0: Yeah, I mean you definitely did some heavy riffs on that album, especially like "I Can Fight Dirty" too. That, that's a pretty heavy riff.
1: Yeah, that, that all came from. Um, I mean, a lot of people, the guitar players, they'll, they'll talk to you about you know like the rap sound. You're in love and that kind of lack of communication. You tune down the E string to D, and you get that really heavy chugging. But, um, and that's how those songs, that, like the fact Two and Love Overload comes from that kind of tune in the D tune, D string to D, which is not particularly rocket size. But I didn't get it from that. I mean, I'm a huge status quo fan. I actually got it from way before all of that from um, the singer for the, sorry, the guitar player from status quo died last year, Richard Barfitt. Uh He did it on a song. Uh, he did loads of that kind of stuff with them. But it, it, it's from a song called Whatever You Want. And... Um, so I kind of got it from that, but you know, rap kind of nailed that kind of uh, that kind of vibe with their sound. Um,
0: Did you play any shows in the states uh, around this time?
1: Well, the, the and this is again back to record company and you know the lack of bad management side of things. Basically, when we signed the Music for Nations, who at the time I mean they had everyone, you know, Metallica and tracks. Wasp, uh, Striper Poison, you know, kind of the label was full of just, just massive bands, um, and the the label in the US, the, the licensing label was, I think it was Combat uh, Reality, one of those. And so when Young and Crazy came out, it, it you know it came out at the same time or like a week later in the States, which was kind of the way things work. But by the time we finished Berserk, Music for Nations in the UK had lost their licensing deal with the US, so Berserk never got properly released in. Uh, in the states and um when we finished the record we went over to something called the foundations forum in la for a few days and they were selling or they were playing our live video and the idea was to get a you know a licensing deal over there but music nations couldn't could never deal with it so it was one of the reasons why we basically had to sort of end, end the business for them and we signed to family enough a guy uh, called scott simmons who worked for combat and relativity label he had gone to work for a big Japanese company called Amuse uh, Amusing, and they were based in LA and New York, and they, they signed us uh, after the Berserk album. So we moved all our all our business to America, believe it or not. But at that point, we hadn't actually ever played a show there. But we went on to make uh, a whole album costing like two hundred thousand dollars. The next album, was bones with um, with the where well, they were Japanese, they were based in America. We were back and forth all the time, and. We had a whole coast uh, to coast tour lined up to, to, uh, to coincide with the release of that Wildsblown's album. And um, we did the, the photo shoots, we were done in New York. It was all based around the clockwork Orange things. We did all that in New York. We recorded the album in some of it over here but in Rockfield. But uh, we did a lot of it in a studio called Costa Mesa, uh, uh, front-page Records in Costa Mesa in L.A those in new york i mean we did it you know all our businesses in america but we hadn't actually played a show at that point and then literally weeks before that album was about to come out the japanese side of the business pulled the plug on on the whole of their business in america they just literally shut down the company and we were left completely on the shelf we spent two years making that record as i said spent about one hundred eighty thousand dollars, i think and they just shelved the whole project that was it just done um,
0: so at that point, um, are we heading into early 90s, the grunge scene? So, the, so the, the the heavy metal scene is starting to end a little bit right here, right?
1: correct? Yeah, but that album we made, but the original Wasp Bones record as well, which is not the one, I think the people uh, that actually got released Pepsi, I left the band, That that was it for me, because like I said, we spent two years making that record, writing songs, making it. It was really in tune with the sound of the sound, really heavy, uh, kind of a bigger, much bigger departure from where we were at. The, the whole vibe, the, the look of the band, as I say, it was all based around the Clockwork Orange kind of vibe. We were dressed in that way. It was, it was quite a hard, kind of violent looking and sounding record. You know, it, it would have stood up um, with all those bands at the time. But we just got wiped out overnight. Literally got a phone call saying the company was, you know, shutting down. Your album's been, you know, put on the shelf as it were. Like, what do we do now? Um, and that was it for me. I just said to Press, I can't do this anymore. You know, it was just, it was the final later, the copper that put everything into it. It was, just, it was just a killer. But he carried on, they recruited another guy and they re-recorded that album, which is the one that got released. Uh around, I think it was about 94, something like that. But I left the band at that time. Um, and the original Wasp Bones album that we recorded didn't come out. It actually came out as part of the... Um, I think it was the Berserk or Banzai album we released it we on um, on Century in like 2007, something like that. So those those are the original recordings, and it's like a double disc thing.
0: So you're out of the band around '94. What did you do at that point?
1: Oh man, I was like, just didn't know what to do. Do you know what I mean? I uh, I, I literally just went back to university, and I I, I didn't know what to do. I. I I've been in a band for so many years, for like 10 years, you know, we were like professional musicians, it was, uh, you know, what paid the bills, we weren't on a lot of money, but, you know, it was enough, um, and we were making our way, and, you know, you get a chart album. and you think, okay, here we go, we're, we're, we're on our way, and it just, you know, and then you, you get signed by an even bigger company, and it was like even more money, I wouldn't say thrown at you, but we had, you know, we were looked after pretty well. Um, they were spending doing everything we wanted on the record and, and they just pulled that away so when it all started apart when i walked away i just I, I don't know i didn't know what to do so um i kicked around for a few minutes and in the end i went back i went to university and did a computer science degree which is kind of surreal but uh that's what i did
0: yeah i mean it sounds kind of similar jay to what happened to a lot of bands at that point anybody that was big in the 80s pretty much got blacklisted in the 90s and, you know, that that sounds pretty common with a lot of them. A lot of them tried to continue on, change their sound uh, but it just wasn't fair. You know, nobody wanted to hear it and, uh, and that happened to a lot of bands.
1: I think that, yeah, I mean I, I you know, I, I get a lot of people, you know, a lot of people say about that whole grunge thing. I, I think it was just a, 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 gen, a genuine shift in music and, um and I, and I don't want to sound disrespectful to, to America and you guys, but you kind of, the, the the hair metal bands particularly, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s, particularly 60s and 70s, the British bands, you know, I'm talking about like, you know, Sabbath, Free, um, Uriah Heep, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin, all those kind of bands just, just completely dominated the world. You know, the British bands kind of were, were the, the big things in America when the 80s came along, you know, particularly all the hair metal stuff, that kind of, that completely dominated, and it's continued to dominate, you know, the American bands continue to dominate, you know, uh, throughout the 80s and 90s and, and took over from all that, That's what people consider as a dated stuff, you know, the deep purples and all that kind of stuff were seen as dinosaurs. Um, and I think, you grunge was just a kind of natural progression of things that people are just, you know, particularly the next generation of kids, you know, just kind of I never why, why were people looking at this I, 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 it didn't it didn't bother me too much, but um, what actually I also think happened was as far as the British scene goes they just never they, they would just lap up whatever came out of America, you know. Um, so from our own creative city in Europe, you know uh, bands weren't really producing you know enough decent music, there wasn't enough good bands coming out and even if they were good, they just weren't getting recognized, you know. And that's kind of still, to a certain extent, to, today there's, there's much less output from Europe and Great Britain than, than they used to be.
0: So, Jay, you said the word, man. You said hair metal. W- what do you think of that term? There's a lot of people that from the 80s bands, they don't like that term, Jay.
1: Oh, I don't get too hung up on it. You know, it's a bit, <laughs> about, you know, it's like the whole um, spinal tap thing, and, you know, the, the term heavy metal, uh, you know, people need to get over themselves. I, I. I you know, I mean, call it what you like, glam rock, whatever you want, but I mean, there's no doubt about it. In the 80s, you know, men did better looking like women and, uh, you know, everyone kind of followed suit, you know, everyone kind of, all bands looked that kind of way. Um, it doesn't bother to me too much. I, I would always think that we, I probably, people may not agree, but I, as far as we were concerned, Tiger Tales were concerned, I, I know we looked ridiculous but I always thought of us as more of a, a glam metal band. We didn't sound like that kind of trashy, kind of 12-bar kind of sleazy riff kind of. We had those songs, and particularly our first album sounds more like that, but when we got a budget and we were allowed to do what we wanted to do in terms of, you know, particularly in Pepsi, we were like, we were into the, the most diverse stuff, you know, from loads of those UK bands, you know, Priest, Sabbath, uh, you know zeppelin um a lot i mean a lot of punk stuff you know the clash sex pistols um the ramones and and, and uh the stranglers that kind of stuff and perhaps he was into like the cubes uh for frank zappa captain beefart when you know so when we created music particularly when we got to berserk i it, it had far more influences from the kind of mainstream rock aussie kind of sounding you know that kind of vibe than it did from sort of LA bands we may have looked that way but I don't think we ever sounded that way so for me I you know I, I people lump will always lump us in that bracket but I it, 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 you know I didn't ever consider us that we sounded like those bands
0: so I'm going to hit you with a couple US glam bands and if you want to just give me a quick thought on each of them okay so Motley Crue
1: well I play with Crue uh <laughs> Uh, I met Nicky and, uh, you know, he's a, he's a great, great guy and I think he's has got his lust for music. I mean, he's the icon in this, this uh, if you want to call it him, and, you know, what everyone's kind of aspired to be. But, you know, he would it be the first to admit he got his kind of vibe from Sid Vicious and the punk thing. You know, they even play Sex Pistols songs. I think Crew nailed it for me in terms of matching their image with their music on Too Fast For That. I think that, you know, that is them. I think they kind of lost their way through a, a, a lot of the albums, and people may disagree with me, but, it, you know, it ain't for me. Um, I think if, if you could nail one track or maybe two tracks with, with Motley Crue, it would be um, Livewire, I think, was off uh, Too Fast for Forever. And, and really, the, the, the pinnacle of their music, where it meets the image for me, was Wild Side. You know, everything about that video and their song was what me, Motley Crue was about, but a lot of the other stuff, you know, I'm not the greatest fan of their music, if you
0: like. There's, you know, one song with Crew that I feel like if I had to tell somebody who hasn't ever heard Motley Crue, I can't believe there's many that haven't. I would say, "Looks That Kill," because that's got those heavy riffs. It's got the vocals. It's just, it's just got everything.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. That's definitely the sound, standout song on "Shout the Devil" for sure. You... I, I was actually at that 1984 show they played at Donington in the UK where they just, you know, they launched their career really as far as Europe. But that, that, their performance that day uh, was, was, you know, off the path. They were amazing.
0: What do you think about them getting back together?
1: Well, <laughs> um, I think probably the last said about that, to be honest. So, you know, the amount of... Uh, uh, show that was put around their last end of you know road tour kind of thing and all that contract and stuff and and then to go back on that I I don't know oh you know as you get older you just you know everything they said you know once the band's done we're done we're done and then it's always the green talks isn't it and uh, it's a shame really because I don't think they need the money and I think you know they could have done other things and the reason that it was cool you know they could have i don't know just other stuff like that and maybe it's maybe a one-off show you know i don't know but the whole going back on 150 million grossing tour nah not for me mate
0: yeah i mean you're right man money talks for sure how about uh, what what would you think of poison because they would be a band that had that look and like i said they were definitely not as heavy as you what do you think of poison
1: well, I mean, you know, we were, at the time, they were, like, on the, on the fly, you know, while we were coming over here, they were, you know, and, um, uh, again, I, I think they probably sound more like, you know, people expect that kind of image to look like, and, um, it, it, you know, great songs, you know, the songs of off, off, The Cat Cry, Dragged In and stuff, they, they, were, they were great tunes, Um it's a little bit light for me, but, you know, you can't deny the tunes, and, um, again, they're always a great
0: live band. So there was a lot of, uh, bands, I would say 1989 was like a breakout year in America for, for hair metal and glam metal, uh, bands like Pretty Boy Floyd, Brittany Fox, um, do you think any of these guys borrowed, uh, some looks from Tiger Tales?
1: Oh, gosh, <laughs> I don't know about that, um... I think they were, you know, you, you had enough of your own bands over there. They didn't look, need to look to us for, <laughs> for any vibes. Um, I, I, I can have to say, I, 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 I think they might have, I've heard a, a bit of Pretty Boy Floyd now and again. I don't think I've ever heard of any Britney Fox stuff, uh, to be honest. Um, so I, I really couldn't say. I mean, some other people, I know some of them are big fans. And, you know, one of the guys is the Murder's Old guy, Wednesday 13. He's, he's a big fan. I know he. You know, he did some liner notes for one of our reissues, so I don't know about, I know he, I don't know about the other bands, you know, some sort of the Bites' band side, is influenced, influence, but I, I couldn't say about those uh, those guys.
0: Do you think uh, the look sometimes was forced? Because I can think back to, let's say, the back cover of an album, and here's the guys, the hair's huge, the makeup's on, and then they go play live, and they're just wearing t-shirts and leather pants, and they don't have any makeup on. So do you think the label forced this image around that time?
1: Um, well, some of them, yeah. I mean, and you know, that kind of uh, that sellout thing kind of happens a lot more as you as you you get on. But that was never the case for us. We we, we were all about the you know you you you've got the whole the whole shebang, you know, uh, every time. Um, and it's one of the reasons why um, I. I you know, when, when something becomes your job, when it becomes your career and it becomes your job and that's what you earn money from, the fun goes out of it. And I know, you know people say it's kind of sour grapes about you and say, well, do you do Targa Tales? Should have be bigger? Well, okay, yeah, you can argue that point and why did you did you do it in America and all that kind of thing. But to me, the, the, the flip side of that is that when we go out and when we play now and we'll do a handful of shows as we have done over the last 10 years, when we go when we play you, we give everything you know that the gig you see is just like you get in the full kind of deal you know and there's no faking it you know that's that's the thing for me you, you, i always remember seeing and again i'm lucky enough to play robotic through watching tommy lee and the guys from the side And when you watch tommy lee live it's like he's playing the last gig he's ever play. now there's very few musicians you could say they do that you know there's so many of them are going through the motions and so yeah like coming to the image they'll put on this, less makeup or making less of an effort they can get away with and, you know, certainly when they, they just want the gig to be over and for me that's a crying shame and I've never wanted to be like that, you, you don't fake it, you're up there because you want to be there, you mean it, you know, and this is the punk kind of influence coming in. don't fuck around with it, you know, the people have come here to pay money and you give it your all, you, you actually die there, you know, and that's, that's what I always try and do and what we always try and do. And that's one of the beauties about only doing it now and again. And and it's one of the reasons we don't play that much because the guys always, to me, they all want to play. They're all in other bands. They want to go up playing all the time. They want to do wrong And I'm like, no, I ain't doing it because less is more, you know? It means, you know, I'm 55, I'm I'm no spring chicken. But when I would do it, you'll get as much as I can ever give you, you know, from from a fan's point of view. I can't stand these bands that just do it for a living. and you know. They flip the singer for the next band, and you know this kind of thing. And it's just, it's just a job. They can't wait to get it over with. That, that
0: that's not us. I, I appreciate your perspective on that. That makes a lot of sense because I think some people wear out their welcome and, and like I said, just do a half-assed job out there. But it sounds like you guys, you don't do that. So that's awesome. Um, you get to, no. you get to the 2000s and 2007 actually, and Pepsi Tate uh, passes away. Um, that had to be a tough shot for the band, right there.
1: Oh, wow, yeah, I mean, um, everything about the, you know, we, the the, the reunion of the band came about because uh, a couple of labels came to us and wanted to reissue our albums, and then they said, oh, we did that with the Berserk 2 record, a couple of demolition records came to us, put put together uh, that record, we did it just a studio thing with some other songs we had, and so that we kind of reunited for a bit, you know, we had not spoken to each other for like 12 years, you know. Um, and then after that, you know, we started getting offers we'll play shows. And then before we know it, we're playing these like major festivals with like Journey, with Whitesnake and, you know, and Twisted Sister and this kind of stuff. And we're like, wow, this is, this is okay. You know, this is great fun. And then me and Pepsi said, look, we we don't want to do this, you know, again, for the reasons I cited just a few minutes ago. That. We want to do it on our terms this time we do not going to get caught up in all this this is not our job we don't need to do this we don't need the money it's never been about the money for us never um it's about delivering the best product and best show that we can possibly do so we said we would do it on our terms but so we were doing that we were picking you know literally cherry picking the shows we wanted to do and everything was going great we were like okay you know this this is cool and literally within about playing two festivals he, he started getting like um really bad stomach, uh, abdominal problems. And it, it just went on for, oh my God, uh, like about eight months, probably longer, before they, they diagnosed him with pancreatic cancer. And um, from that moment, you know, he, he'd lost so much weight. He was a very tall guy and big guy. And, you know, he went to just this like thing. And uh, it, it was just ruthless, absolutely. A horrendous experiences as, as that disease is you know it's just just ravages your body and you you watch somebody you love just just fall apart in front of you it's, it's just the worst
0: it is tough I, i've seen it in my own family uh it, it's a terrible disease and uh yeah exactly it, it's very tough to watch so yeah you then you guys ended up getting a replacement and continued on with some some more shows or
1: well, yeah, I mean, you know, that was in part thanks to the Y&T guys. We would, we did a like a benefit thing with his wife at the time, Sharon. She was, she's an opera singer in Wales, quite a prolific opera singer and, and media presenter. And she set up a charity, and we went out and did some shows for that. And we went on tour with Y&T. We did about I can't know about ten shows with them, and and we were just thinking, you know, we had a guy, a good friend of ours, uh, Nails, uh, Nails Ben Quinn, step in and. Play for us. He stood in a few times and played when Pepsi he was there, and he was great. And we we kind of did that, and and we thought, well, you know, I don't think he would have ever wanted us to give up. You know, he would have just he would have said, "This is cool, you know, just keep going." He was enjoying it, and I think he would have, you know, he would he would have wanted us to carry on. So that, that's kind of what we did.
0: Yeah, you made a great point. Really, I think that's how you have to think it's always sad and depressing when somebody you love is gone but you you know what would they want you to do would they want you to sit around and be depressed and and give up on life or would they want you to push on and and keep the band going and and living your life and you know that's what that's what it sounds like you guys did so you get to um 2013 and uh you put out an ep called knives which i I think is uh, amazing by the way uh but no kim kim hooker did not return for that one what happened with that
1: well, yeah, there was a, kind of a lot of, I mean, between Pepsi Dye and, and, um, it was the 2007. When did Knives come out? What, what year was that? Uh,
0: I've got written, 13 written down, Jay. I think, I think it's right.
1: So, what the, like, uh, or, or is that what
0: is on, maybe that's what's on Spotify. Maybe that's Spotify's lesson is
1: 13. Yeah, it was six years. I mean, there was, we did a lot in between that because, I mean, we worked, we did a number of shows. We did a, a before that came out with we, we did a, um, uh an E P with with Sean and Pepsi's wife for uh, that opera singer over a guy called Bryn Turvo for the charity. Um and uh, with the I believe song. I think you'll find out on YouTube. Um but the charity just Sean went on to raise, you know, we we did our bit, but she went on to raise I mean over like two hundred and seventy five thousand pounds, you know, I don't know, like three hundred and fifty thousand dollars and she donated um they like uh, about three hundred thousand dollars two hundred thousand pound to um the stem cell research here in in wales for one of the uh, research centers and we've all been there and um you know had a a tour around that so we did a lot in that six years played played a lot lot of shows um and basically we went to change the bass player form we got a, a girl in and um things just unravel from there um with kim there was uh, a lot of stuff said you know that should stay behind uh, closed doors but it, you know it, uh, there was just a great fallout with uh, the decisions of the band to change the bass player for a girl and uh, it uh, it just fell apart from there it was a terrible decision and uh, he wanted to keep the girl in the band here and uh, you know the rest of us it just wasn't working so you know we unfortunately had to let Sarah go, and he, he left straight afterwards, so uh, at that point we were left, from, it was me and Ace, there was no band at all, really, which was the way we, you know, Ace Scott, I just said, well, you know, we can't carry on, this is just ridiculous, and Ace pretty much when I recruited, um, you know, he knew Jules, I think, from Australia from some other avenues, and, you know, he, he said, let's just give him a go, and he uh, so we, we made it work for a few years. You know, we're living on the other side of the world. I mean, uh, it's just crazy, really. But uh, it actually worked for a while. And, and yeah, we made a, did an EP that night nice and it turned out really great. And, uh, you know, still, a really cool of record.
0: Yeah, if anyone hasn't ever heard Shoe Collector, they really should give it a spin. I like it because you've got some cool elements. You've got a little back and black in there. You've got, uh, I think, Ode to Wanted Man by Rat. So, so it's a cool song, catchy song, and then there's some cool uh, old-school elements in there
1: yeah well and that's the shoe collector comes it was again one of Pepsi's. He made a short film called the shoe collector which uh, i think we put online somewhere um before he died it was one of the things he was working on and um the video is about it's a very short film a couple of minutes uh, about a girl who you know gets off with guys and then she uh she kills them with uh with, with her shoes and then Keep, keeps the issues in in a, in in a cabinet. So it was all a bit weird, but um, that's where that comes from, the, the, the idea of that song. That's
0: awesome, because it's kind of like you're keeping his spirit alive, you're keeping his ideas going, so that's pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, and that, that followed on with the Blast album. There was one song on there, particularly the, um, what turned into uh, the the It Popped song and video that comes from one of his demos before we we made that record i used to listen to all his demos and if there was bits in there that i thought were good uh before he died he gave me like a double cd of all the demo stuff he did and i I used some of that as well you know and whatever i could integrate those pieces of of stuff he did I, i would
0: so you said you mentioned blast so at this point you have rob which i believe was the bassist come up to being the front man how did that come about
1: well Rob was, here. Rob was here at that point playing bass and that was all going well with Jules in the band from Australia and then I mean Jules you know it was always going to be a stretch with uh, somebody living the other side of the world uh, you know being in the band and it, it worked for a few years it was okay um, then Jules you know I think he had some of his own personal problems and you know it, he, there was no hard feeling he just said you know this, I, can't, I can't do this anymore you know uh, it just wasn't working for him at that time so you know we respected that decision and it was just like the obvious choice that Rob, because Rob has been a singer in his own band, you know, band for years, that he kind of just took that on, and we we thought, well, this this works, and um, we brought in Bertie on bass, and then yeah, I made the blast record, and and we really set out to make the most kind of commercial, you know, Tiger Tail sounding record. I mean, I, the, the, the kind of. The reason for that record was really you know pepsi always said you know we should make the band when we came back around he said you know don't ever lose sight of what the band is supposed to what people expect it to sound like and i kind of that was resonating in my ears when i was writing songs for that album that um as i said listening to some of these demos but when i was putting the songs together to, i kept going back to thinking you know, what other the people want this band to sound like and and, and I, I think it's a really really great record you know Sadly, like everything these days, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't get the push because it needs, you know, there's no record companies or the, the amount of investment that you need to put behind it. You can make the records fairly cheap, but, you know, the infrastructure around promoting them is not really there anymore. So it's, uh, it's it, it, it deserves a lot. It's a terrific sounding record. I still still love it to this day. I think it sounds great.
0: I was listening to it a little bit before our interview, and uh, one of the standout tracks for me is uh, All the Girls in the World. That just reminds me of, like, 80s summer vibe, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, we really started to sort of single like act that. and that did a video. We, we played at Bang Your Head Festival in Germany a couple of years ago with Trusted Sister, and we kept, we kept the footage from that, used that as the video for it. It turned out great. Yeah, great, great sounded song. Um, you know i think 50 pop is great i loved at the first track that just for a night i just think that as a song that goes in different ways i know if pepsi was alive he would have loved that because he loved songs that weren't just you know your standard bridge you know first bridge chorus it, it it goes in a little bit of a different way so that opening track is is probably my favorite on the album but they're all i really love it i think it's a great record
0: so, Jay, you follow me on Twitter, I follow you, and a lot of the listeners follow me on Twitter, and they probably all know that I'm a big-time KISS freak, okay? And you were on the KISS cruise. Why don't you talk about that a little bit?
1: Well, oh, we, yeah, we did the KISS cruise a few years ago. I mean, I mean who wouldn't want to go now? It was great, you know, what a, what a great experience. Um, fantastic to be around all those people just on a boat in uh, yeah, you know, was it the Bahamas and, and and listening and playing, you know, playing shows, listening to Kiss songs. It was it was great, absolutely incredible experience. We did, we played with Kiss, I think, twice before that. So you know, we we were kind of uh, we we were l- lucky to play with them before, you know. So um, we, we we'd met them, and uh, you know, really really nice bunch of guys. Gene Simmons, he, he knows uh, our old manager from the Amuse Inc days. He used to work with him for the band called Easy Remember them? oh yeah I he produced their record like, years ago they were on a muse uh, so we knew our manager at the time in LA uh, each night there. so yeah I mean terrific guys Eric Singer uh, Gene great guys had a long speaking long time to uh, Tommy Thayer asking one of my favourite albums being and Pepsi's favourite albums was always the black and blue album without love you know we loved the sound of that record and the tunes and I was talking to that so it was brilliant to chat with the guys and you know have those kind of conversations as a, as a you know a fan yeah good, great really great um so were you a kiss fan in the 70s i was but not as much as perhaps you guys were. <laughs> kim was the biggest uh kiss, kiss maniac we, we actually played with ace fraley as well and uh a few years ago in the uk we did two shows with him that was pretty metal. i mean that was just surreal um and i remember kim getting just so absolutely drunk probably on the side of the stage and he got absolutely rinsed, um, you know, watching Ace watching Fraley. So I was a big fan, but not, not as much as, as some of the other guys, I think. So um,
0: playing live because of the, your condition might be a little tough, you know, long-term. But what about plans to do uh, another studio album?
1: Well, you know, Mike, it's the same with all the rest of it. You know, I, I go back to what I said earlier. If, if you can't do things properly and... You know, for us to do a record from, you know, from concept to writing the songs, to go in and record it and the amount of effort, the work that goes into it, I know what that will take out of me and, 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 and you know, in terms of doing it and, do, and it and I just don't feel it would ever get the amount of exposure that the work, you know, justifies the, the amount of effort that's put into it. That, that's the problem. Um, and, you know, if unless there's that kind of commitment around it to promote the record and you know it's never been about the money for me it's not about that whatsoever it's always been about getting your music in front of people and when things are just dismissed out of hand or they you know it's like fast food now you know what i mean nobody i don't know if anybody wants to even hear albums anymore do they have the time for them i I don't know um so i can't say the the appetite's there for me there would there would need to be some something to go with it that made it you know made it worthwhile because it's very easy to dismiss music and dismiss an album and dismiss songs by bands but people don't understand the amount of work and effort that goes into making records and making music it's monumental, it's, it's monumental yeah you know, it's huge um and and i and I, I don't feel the like I said, the amount of effort is, is justifies the returns of it. And I don't, I don't mean the financial returns at all. I mean the, you know, the, the amount of exposure that we get, I guess.
0: I think the hard part is uh, you've got to hit on it like fast food. We're like in this disposable society. So I listened to the album once... Uh, it doesn't stick, I move on to the next thing, where back in the day, if we had radio play, we've got video play, there's repetition, you hear it more, and then you start to grasp the music, and, and we just don't have that today.
1: Well, exactly, and what, and what you also had, you went out and bought a physical product, you know what I mean, it was a physical, tangible thing that, you know, whether it was a piece of vinyl you put on your record player and, or, or a CD player, you know, you maybe put a CD player in your car, but you know, you 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 had something to show for that, and, and what that also did as well was, you know, it didn't just disappear out of your mind. You know, it wasn't just so disposable that oh, what's next? You know, oh, you're on shuffle play or whatever on your Spotify or iTunes, whatever you're on. You know, you and when you got into a band, you you kind of really got into them. You wanted everything by them, and you would listen to those obscure album tracks and singles and demos, and you wanted everything by a band. You know, that that that's kind of gone. So. Um, like I say, you know, to, to do an album of like 10, 12 songs is, is, is a huge amount of work and for it to just to be disappear without a kind of trace, you just think, well, what's the point of that? You know what I mean? It's, it's literally, what is the point? Uh, because it isn't getting the exposure and, and reward it deserves in people listening to it.
0: Jay, you got any final thoughts or things you want to say to the fans listening?
1: Oh, listen, I, I mean, I, I'm just so grateful that people like you and the guys and everybody who follows you on Twitter still even interest in the band that, you know, looks back fondly at all that music and, and I'm very grateful for them to you know, support in the band now when we come out and play. Well, when we do play occasionally, the bands, you know, the fans come out in, 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 in numbers and they sing the songs and, and they have a great evening. Isn't that what it's all about, you know? So to, to be able to, if, if, when we were... Putting a band together when we were just around in like '84, '85. If I thought I could get a couple of years out of this, all I ever wanted to do was, you know, play a gig, and after that, all I ever wanted to do was make a record, and then after that, I wanted to make another record, and so on. So, and you know, I got to do everything I ever wanted to. I played with some of the biggest bands in the world, and, and played in front of thousands of people, and you know, people around the world, you know, love and appreciate our music. I can't, I can't ask for any more than that. You know, people say, "Oh, you should have made it bigger." Listen. You know, I, I, we made, it might have been a small mark we made on the music business, but, you know, I can go anywhere and people generally know who the band are and they they, they love the music. So I can't thank everybody for, you know, allowing us to even exist 35, 40 years later. You know, I mean, so I'm eternally grateful for everyone to, uh, yeah, to still be in support of the band. Thank you everyone so much.
0: Well, Jay, I really appreciate you being on my uh, Metalcast here. This is going to be the premiere episode, so I encourage everybody to stay tuned. For, we're going to have a bunch uh, of more episodes to check out in the future. Jay, really appreciate your time tonight, sir.
1: No problem. Pleasure, Mike. Really, really glad to, uh, to be asked, and thank you. thank you so much for the time. Well, that's a wrap.
0: Thanks for joining me on the 80s Glam metal Cast. Talk to you soon on Twitter. Rock on.